By no means we died to sin, how can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. If we have been united with him in his death, we shall certainly also be united with him in his resurrection. For we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless, that we should no longer be slaves to sin, because anyone who has died has been freed from sin. Now, if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him, for we know that since Christ was raised from the dead, he cannot die again. Death no longer has mastery over him. The death he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life he lives... He lives to God. Now we've come to a division in the book of uh, Romans, as I mentioned in our first study. The first uh, five chapters of Romans are divided into two sections. The first two and a half chapters provide uh, the downside of the gospel to us, the bad news. We learn from those chapters that uh, we're, we're sinful. Paul divides the human race into two types of people. There are the irreligious folks and the religious people. The irreligious people are represented in Paul's thinking as uh, the average, ordinary Roman citizen, the educated, cultured, sophisticated Roman of his day, the uh, so-called beautiful people, whom Paul says have, have the knowledge of God from creation. They're well aware of God's character but uh, they've, they've turned against the light that they have. They have turned from worshiping the living God to worshiping idols. And they are responsible, Paul says. They're without excuse. They know the truth, but they deny it. And then Paul takes up the, the issue of the religious person. First the religious Gentile or the moral Gentile, and then uh, the religious Jew. And in particular, the Jew, he says, has the light of Scripture. He has the truth, which he, too, has turned against. They know the truth, they teach the truth, but they do not do the truth. And so Paul reaches the conclusion that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. Some people are better than others, but the point that Paul is making is that we all fall short of the character of God. God's glory is what he is. And regardless of who we are or what we have done, we have all fallen short of God's character. Now, Paul says the law does not help us. The law only makes things worse. Uh, the law defines sin for us. The law just makes the burden greater. It piles the load on uh, deeper. It, it makes us feel even more guilty and more responsible. The law can't save us. That's, that's the bad news. But the good news is that God himself has done something about our problem. In the person of the Son, he came to earth, and he became the sin-bearer. Our sins were placed upon him. He bore our sins in his own body on the cross. And by believing in Jesus, we are delivered from our sins. Paul says that we have no, there is no, no condemnation for those that are in, in Christ Jesus. Now, that's the good news. Now, uh, the, the question might arise at this point. How, then, do we live the Christian life? Since uh, we understand 
that salvation is by faith in Christ, and it's by grace, it's a gift. How do we go about living it? After all, since we've been forgiven of all of our sins, uh, why not uh, go ahead and sin? Wouldn't that be all right? Because uh, our destiny is fixed, it's secure, there's no more guilt and condemnation over the past. Uh, what, sh- what shall we say about our sins? Now, Paul has already raised the issue that grace abounds where sin increases, back in verse five, uh, chapter 5, verse 20. Where sin increased, grace increased all the more. He's already established that you cannot outsin the grace of God. No matter how much we sin, how often we sin, how great is our sin, grace prevails no matter what. So the question then might rise, why not sin? Why not go ahead and live it up? It's all right because we're going to go to heaven anyway and uh, our sins are forgiven. Paul would say, no, no, absolutely not. God forbid, he says. How can we who died to sin live any more in it? Uh, to say that grace prevails over sin and therefore we can sin is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer called cheap grace. It devaluates, it devalues the uh, grace. It, it, it strips it of its value for us. And what Paul wants us to understand is that justification is more than mere forgiveness. It resulted in a radical change in our being. Something happened to us which makes it incomprehensible for us to say, let's just go on and sin. It's all right to sin because God is going to be gracious. And it's that that he's concerned with in, in chapter 6. That's what brings about this, uh, this uh, brings on this strong disclaimer, by no means. How can we go on sinning that grace may, may increase? We died to sin. Now, th- this is a very difficult passage. I, I want to admit that at the, at the very beginning. It's a tough one. There are a lot of questions in this passage, and I'm sure you had a great time discussing it in, in uh, your growth groups this week uh, because uh, it's, it's bound to produce controversy. Now, we could spend all day talking about the problems in this passage, but I, I want to take three. There are three that really bother me and I find bother other people. And these are the three issues that, that I want us to talk about this morning. The first is this whole issue of baptism. What in the world does Paul mean when he says we are baptized into Christ? That is very confusing. The second uh, question that this passage raises in my mind is what does it mean we died to sin? What did I die to? Or what died to me? Or did anything die at all? I look at you, and, and some of you look very sleepy, but you don't look dead. Uh, well, and I take it back. Some of you look dead. I, I, I. But most of you are fairly alert. you got your eyes open, and, and you're conscious, and you're, you're, you're responding. And, and so in what sense are you dead? Now, the third question that I want to uh, try to answer is this matter of the, what Paul calls the body of sin. What is he talking about when he... Uh, uh, when he uses that expression, the body of sin. Now, first, let's talk about baptism. Paul says, very, very clear what Paul says. The question is, what does Paul mean? Paul says, we've been baptized into Christ's death, burial, and resurrection. What does he mean? Well, baptism is one of those subjects that always provokes a lot of controversy. 
Uh, if you came into this church a Lutheran, then you probably faced the fact that you had to be baptized again, and that, that troubled you. Uh, sometimes troubles me as well. We've got to think that one through. Uh, there are all sorts of modes and methods of, of baptism, and uh, we, you know, we, we, we don't understand what it's for or, or what it means. Uh, I heard a story once about uh, a Baptist and a Presbyterian that were discussing baptism. You know, bab- Baptists believe in immersion, total immersion, and Presbyterians believe in sprinkling, you sprinkle water on the top of the head. And they, they were discussing the significance of baptism. And the Presbyterian said to the, to the Baptist, uh, if, if you walk into the baptistry up to your knees, does that constitute baptism? Oh, no, the Baptist said. What, what about if, you, if you're immersed up to your waist? Is that baptism? The ba- Baptist said, no, no, that's not baptism. What about up, up to your neck? Uh, are you baptized if you've been immersed up to your neck? no. No. Well, what about if it goes over your head? Yes, that's baptism. And the Presbyterian said, that's what I thought. It's water on top of the head that counts. <laughs> now, uh, we, we know something. Uh, we know a little bit about the history of baptism. We know, for example, that Jews baptized. They baptized Gentiles. They didn't baptize other Jews. They baptized Gentile proselytes, that is, Gentiles who wanted to become Jews. They wanted to join the Jewish religion. Uh, they separated the men and women into two groups, and they, they took off all of their clothes. They were completely stripped, and they, they immersed them. And as they were immersed, they, they uh, confessed their sins. They confessed the idolatry of their lives. And, and as they came up out of the water, they were considered Jews. They had joined the Jewish religion through the rite of baptism. Uh, by the way, I, I've mentioned this before. That's why John the Baptist had such an impact on the Jews. That's why he was called John the Baptizer. His name is not John the Baptist, by the way. He did not belong to that denomination. Uh, his name is John the Baptizer. Because uh, if you recall, what John said is that you Jews have to be baptized. And that was what got their attention. Because what he was saying, basically, is you Jews are not Jews. You're just Jews in name, but you're not really committed to the to the covenant God of Israel. Um, so we know a little bit about baptism from, from Jewish uh, history. We know that the early church baptized. Uh, this was the part of the Great Commission. Go and baptize in my name, Jesus said. Uh, and the early church uh, did that. They baptized. There is a second century writing, Christian writing, called the Didache. It's just a Greek word for teaching, uh, sort of corpus uh, of, of Christian teaching at that point, a little booklet of church order. And uh, in the Didache, uh, uh, baptism was to take place in cold water, if you can believe that, cold water. They weren't supposed to use warm water. You could use warm water if there was no cold water around, but uh, cold water was the best. You really knew you'd been baptized when you were <laughs> baptized back then, and uh, you were to use running water. Not stagnant water, but running water. And uh, if there wasn't enough water to immerse, then you could pour water on, the t- on top of the head. So y- you can see that there were different ways of interpreting this, this, uh, this rite, different modes, different methods. You know, we baptize in warm, stagnant water today. We're a long way away from the, from the second, century, uh, second century church. Uh, basically, the confusion 
in baptism comes because we have not translated the word. What we've done is to make uh, an English word out of the Greek word baptizo. The the Greek word for to baptize, the verb, is baptizo. And if it sounds like baptism, that's understandable, because all we've done is transliterate the word into English. We haven't translated it. We've anglicized the, the, the word, made an English word out of it. The Greek word, baptizo, has nothing to do with water. You see, that's the confusing thing. Whenever we say baptize, we immediately think of water. Well, you've got to have a you got to have a baptistry, and you, or you've got to have a, a river, and you immerse someone into water. That's because of, of our misunderstanding of the word. But when a Greek or a person living in Paul's day heard that word, uh, what they thought of was something entirely different. The word baptizo means to place something into something else. That's all it means. It has nothing to do with water. Uh, they do use the word sometimes to refer to water. There's one, one classical uh, writing that describes a ship being baptized into the water, but it, you know, no one was immersing it. It was sinking. That's the point. It was going down. Uh, whenever they used that word, they were thinking of, of, of taking something out of one element and introducing it into another. That's the meaning of the word. So when Paul says, you've been baptized into Christ, we understand that what he means is that you've been taken out of one environment and placed into another. You understand? It has nothing to do with water. Now, water baptism is a very good symbol of that reality. Uh, when we place someone into the water, we place them down into the water, and then we take them out. Well, that's a good picture of being placed into Christ and then brought out with Christ. Because what Paul says is that when we were placed into Christ, we died with him. Now, what he means is this. Jesus went to the cross, and he died. He perished on that cross. He was taken down from the cross, and he was buried. And then on the third day, he rose from the dead. Now, Paul says the very same thing happened to you. When you acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord, when you placed your faith in Christ, then the Holy Spirit placed you into Christ. In other words, you died with him. It's as though you hung on that cross yourself. And you were taken off of that cross and buried. And you were raised again to a new life. Now, you see, Christ died for me. He died for David Roper. He died for David Melhoff. So it's as though David Roper hung on that cross, or David Melhoff hung on that cross, was taken down, placed into the grave, and brought out again to a newness of life. Water baptism is a very apt, very helpful symbol of that reality. You see, placed into the water, you come out to a new life. Now, I believe that Paul is not talking about water baptism here, the right, but he's talking about the reality, the real thing, the thing that happened to you when you believed in Christ. You were identified with him. As a matter of fact, Paul even explains the symbol that he uses, or actually it's not even a symbol in Paul's day, but he was thinking of of the reality when he says in verse 5, we have been united with him in his death. Now, it's not water baptism that places us into Christ. 
It is the baptism of the Spirit. It's the Spirit placing us into the Lord Jesus, identifying us with him. And that took place the moment you received Jesus Christ as Lord. So what I want you to understand is that if you consider yourself a Christian, if you acknowledge the Lordship of Christ, you're subject to his leadership and his Lordship, you have died with Christ, you have been buried with him, you have been raised again to newness of life. That's what baptism means. And when you celebrate the rite, you're simply showing forth in a symbolic way the reality of what's already taken place. Now, do you understand that? Is that clear? Okay, nod, up, down, this way, something. Okay, I just want you to understand. All right, that's baptism. Now, the second thing, that uh, the second problem that we want to uh, confront in this passage is this whole issue of what it means to have died to sin. Because there's an enormous amount of misunderstanding over this issue. Now, I'm going to try to make it as clear as I possibly can. Uh, if you don't understand... Raise your hand or something, because I'm not interested in just talking. I, I, I want you to understand, okay? There, there are a lot of different ways of, of, of looking at this, uh, uh, at this matter of our death. The question is, what is it that we died to, or what is it that died? Some people would say, well, you died to your sin nature. You had an old nature before you became a Christian. After you become a Christian, you have a new nature. The problem with that, first of all, is that it does not accord with my experience. Uh, I don't know about you, but when I sing the song, Prone to Wander, Lord, I feel it, I feel it. Uh, I, I, you know, I understand that I have the nature of Christ, but I also have the old nature. I, there's a great deal of sin in old David yet. So it doesn't accord with my experience. Now, you know, at that point, I would say, well, what does experience have to do with anything? What matters is Scripture. Well, that's my second argument. It doesn't accord with Scripture either. For two reasons. If you notice, Paul says in this very passage that our Lord died to sin. And then we died to sin. Things equal to the same thing are equal to each other. The point is... That Jesus, we died to whatever Jesus died to. And he could not possibly have died to his sin nature because he never had one. Paul would be contradicting himself. You see? Our Lord was without sin. He knew no sin. He had no sin nature. So whatever it was that Jesus died to was not his sin nature. And we died to the same thing. So it could not possibly, possibly be our sin nature. Furthermore, Paul goes on to say, don't yield to sin. uses the same word. So how could he be saying, don't yield to something you don't have? wouldn't make any sense. So I, 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 I don't think he could possibly be saying that we died to our sin nature. Another possibility is that we died to sin itself. In other words, we, sin has no power over us any longer. But again, I don't find that true to my experience, and I don't try, find it true to, to Scripture, because I see illustration after illustration of men and women who fumbled and fell, and who, who, were, who were very oftentimes uh, uh, subordinate to sin in their lives. It became their Lord. So I, that troubles me. That doesn't seem to be exactly right. Then what is it that Paul is saying here? If he is saying... If he's not saying that we died to our sin nature, and if, we, if he's not saying that we died to sin's power over us, what is it that we died to? 
Now, let me suggest a metaphor that, that uh, John Stott uses in a little book called Men Made New. It's very helpful. He puts it this way. Every Christian can divide his life into two volumes. There is the old life, which he calls B.C., before Christ. And there is the new life, which he calls A.D., Anno Domini, in the year of our Lord. Every Christian can divide his life into those two volumes. There's the old life, the old lifestyle, everything that it represented. And there is the new life in Christ. And he says it's like two volumes. And what we do when we become Christians is take that that old volume and we wrap it up in brown paper and we tie a string around it and we throw it up on the top uh, shelf of, of the closet and we put it away. In other words, the old life, the old lifestyle, the old allegiances, the old obligations are all gone. They're over. We don't owe anything to that old life any longer. Now, when, when I uh, uh, first met my wife, there were a couple of other young ladies that I was uh, fond of. And uh, I was living in California at the time, and I was corresponding with all three, these other two young ladies and my wife. Uh, unfortunately, I was sending the same letters to all three of them. <laughs> and... Uh, also, unfortunately, they were all good friends, and they started comparing notes and uh, realized this was happening. But about the same time, I, I, I began to realize that my affections really were moving toward Carolyn. And uh, after a while, I made a commitment to her, and we were engaged, and I started a new chapter, a new volume of my life. And I, I, I actually never had a little black book. I had their phone numbers and addresses uh, memorized, but if I'd had a little black book, I would have torn it up at that point, say, because the old alliance, the old allegiances, the old love affairs, they're over. New volume, say, writing a new history. That's what Paul is saying. That's what he's saying. What was the old life like? Well, a lot of guilt, a lot of guilt. Just that, that awkward feeling that one of these days we're going to stand before a wrathful God and then we, we come to realize that there's no condemnation to those that are in Christ Jesus. His wrath has, has been satisfied. There's no condemnation. What was life like over here? Well, a lot of fear, fear of death, frustration about the shortness of my life, anxiety over what was going to happen when I stood face to face with God. It's all over. What was going on over here in terms of morality and ethics? A lot of things I was doing that... Ah, uh, you know, I, I knew they might be wrong, but I really didn't care. And all of a sudden, things happen. New set of allegiances, new obligations, new loves, new interests. No guilt, no fear of death. A sense that there's a, another kind of life that I ought to be living. And you see what Paul is saying? What happened is that when we became believers, when we trusted Christ, we died with Christ. We died to this old life to the old volume, uh, to the chapter that we wrote the first 20, 30 years of our life, we died. And then we open a new book, you see. That's over. Let me illustrate. Most of you know that Eric Dickerson uh, is now playing for uh, the Indianapolis Colts. 
He's no longer wearing the blue and gold uniform of the L.A. Rams. He's wearing the blue and white uniform of, of the Indianapolis Colts. He has a horseshoe on his helmet now instead of a, a ram, a ram horn. Now, uh, just imagine that one, one night he gets a phone call from the owner of the Rams. And uh, she says, uh, Eric, next time you, uh, they have to be playing the Rams the next week. And so she, she, she says, Eric, the next time you get the ball, I want you to run the wrong way and score for the opposition. And he says, uh, no, Georgia, <laughs> I don't belong to you anymore. You don't pay my salary. She says, well, I, I paid it for years. No, no, you don't pay my salary any longer. Indianapolis Colts pay my, pay my salary. My allegiance, my loyalty is to them. I died to the L.A. Rams. Well, I suppose you get in a huddle, and uh, uh, Jack Trudeau calls a play, red, right, 37 on two, and they break, and, and uh, they hand the ball to Dickerson. He goes through the wrong hole, and he gets smashed. And the next day, they, they're showing the films, and uh, they say, you know, wh- why didn't you go through the right hole? He says, well, says, uh, well in the Rams system, uh, 7-3 means something else than it means in the Indianapolis Colts. And I, I just forgot, you know, I just, I just forgot what was going on. They said, come on, get with it. You're playing for the Colts now. Oh, okay, I, I understand. Now, that's the sort of thing that happens to us all the time. We forget who we belong to. And uh, we do things that are reminiscent of the old life because the habits are there and, and the, the old appeal and allure is still there. And, and we still do things that belong to the old life, but, uh, but no, no allegiance, no obligation, no loyalty there anymore. You see? That's what Paul is saying. We close that chapter of our life. We're dead to it. We're alive to God. It's precisely what Paul says, I believe, in 1 Corinthians 6, when he writes to those dear folks in Corinth who just had such a messed up past, and he said, you folks used to be adulterers and fornicators and homosexuals and swindlers and gossips, and, and he just says this list of all the things that they used to do, and he says, and such were some of you, but you've been sanctified, you've been cleansed. He's not saying you'll never again commit sin. That's not the point. It's just that there's a new life that's yours. You died to the old. You're alive to the new. Now, uh, the third question I want to try to answer is this uh, matter of the the body of sin. In verse uh, 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him so that the body of sin might be rendered powerless. Uh, I want to tell you quite honestly, I do not have the foggiest idea what Paul is talking about. Uh, there are two possibilities when, when he says, uh, when he describes the uh, sin as the body of sin. He may be saying the mass of sin that characterized the old life. That's a possibility. A body of sin in the sense that it was a, it was a mass of sin. Some commentators take it that way. Others... Uh, feel that what Paul is is describing is the body that's given over to sin, the human body that's um, yielding its members to sin. I'm inclined to think that's what Paul is saying because of what he goes on to say in in the next paragraph. But at this point in in, in my life, I'm just uh, just not sure. Let's let's read on and see uh, see what Paul is talking about. Perhaps we can find some help in the 
in the last two paragraphs, uh, in, in, in the last paragraph, verse 11. In the same way, count yourself dead to sin. Now, you remember in the first paragraph, the, the word is know. I want you to know something. Now, in this paragraph, he says, I want you to count something to be true. I, he's just saying, believe it. That's all. This is the word that we've come across time and time again through the book of Romans, that word from which we get our word logic. It has to do with the mind, thinking it through, uh, reckoning it to be so. I, I, I love the NIV and King James translation because coming from Texas, we were always reckoning things to be true. And, and I, I thought Paul was a Texan for years. <laughs> in the same way, reckon yourself, count yourself, deal yourself in. Count yourself dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Uh, first of all, we have to know that this is true. I thought when I read this of the uh, Japanese uh, soldiers on the Marshall Islands, uh, in Guam and, and Weetok, other places that hid for years in the jungles, didn't know the war was over, thought they were still at war with the United States, never heard that there was an armistice. Some people, that's first of all, we need to know. That it's true. We've been set free from the old life. And the second thing is to begin to believe it. Count on it. Reckon it to be so. And uh, then he says in verse 12, negatively, Do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its evil desires. Do not offer, do not yield the parts of your body to sin as instruments of wickedness. But rather offer yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and offer the parts of your body to him as instruments of righteousness. For sin shall not be your master. Don't have any obligation. Don't have any allegiance any longer to sin because you're not under law, but you're under grace. Not under the principle of self-effort, but the principle that God gives and gives and gives and gives and gives. So the first word is to know. You have to know it's true. The second word is to reckon that it's true. And the third word is to yield. Yield your members. Don't yield your members to this uh, old uh, order of things. Sin is not your master any longer. Jesus is your master. Don't yield to that. Don't yield the parts of your body to sin, but yield yourself to God. Now, let me illustrate how I think this works out. You're, you're sitting in a... Uh, across the table from someone having coffee. And uh, they, they share a, a juicy bit of news with you about a brother or sister in Christ. Uh, a, a, a word of harsh criticism about them. Now, I, I don't know what happens to you. I know what happens to me. My, my tongue begins to engage. Uh, I, you know, hearing about somebody else's uh, shortfall always makes me feel a whole lot better, and I like to join in because that you know that's good for my ego to talk about them. So my tongue starts to join in on this juicy piece of gossip. I love it. I relish it. See. Oh, but at that point, I remember something. Oh, wait a minute. Wait, wait a minute. I'm dead to all that. I died with Christ, and I believe that. And so then I begin to yield my tongue to righteousness. And, uh, begin, and, and I say something like, like this. Well, let, let's go talk to them. If that's really true, Jesus, you know, the Lord said we should go talk to that brother. 
if, if, if they're in trouble, see. That's yielding your tongue to righteousness. Or you're, uh, uh, you're in somebody's apartment some night, and uh, it's getting late, and, and you're very lonely, and all you've got is, a, is an empty apartment house to, uh, to go to, and uh, there's some wonderful romantic music on the stereo, and uh, this fellow is so warm and so kind and so loving, and he's suggesting that you spend the night there, and you just hate to go home because there's nothing there at home. What do you do? Well, first of all, you remember something. Oh, that's part of the old life. I know that, and I believe that. And then you say to your feet, feet, get moving. <laughs> Not into the bedroom, out the door. See, That's yielding your members to righteousness. Do you understand what I'm talking about? You men are on a trip. You're away from town, and you're in one of those wonderful motels that uh, has X-rated uh, movies. And uh, this is getting to be more and more of a common practice. And you go to your room, and you're tired. And it's the easiest thing in the world to flip that thing on. And you say, eyes Let's get out of here. Feet, move me downstairs, some other place, so you don't have to face into that, into that temptation. That's what he's talking about. Yield your eyes, your mind, your hands, your sexual organs, your feet, your legs, your every part of you to Christ because you've got no allegiance to the old life. Now, I want to say something to those of you who have habits that dominate you, because I want you to understand what Paul is saying. We have people here with eating disorders. We have people that are alcoholics who have problems with drugs. We have people who are gay, who are struggling with with this issue in their lives. What can we say to them when they sin over and over and over again? Well, unfortunately, the way this passage is often applied is to say to them, the problem with you is that you just don't know the truth or you're not reckoning on it, or you're not yielding. It's just that simple. If you knew reckon and yield, then you could, you could stop this thing. And they are trying to stop, and they can't seem to stop, and they have this enormous burden of guilt resting on them. How can we apply this passage to them? Well, let me tell you what I think. And I'm just, you know, again, please understand, I am not the authority in this, in this congregation. The scriptures are the authority. I want you to think it through yourself. But this is the position that I'm coming to. Because I, too, struggle with what to say to people who, who, who are in that, uh, in that mode. And this is what I say to them. And this is what I would say to you this morning. When you are assaulted by temptation... First of all, remember, remember who you are, that you're dead to that old life. Your allegiance, your obligation, your love affair is over. That's volume one of your life that's been closed. Know that and believe that. And yield your members. Now, notice he does not say stop sinning. He says yield your members. In other words, just say, Lord, here I am. Take my hands, my mind, my hungers, my thirsts, my longings. Every part of me, I, I want them to. I, I want them to be controlled by you, and just and just put them in, in His hands. Now, if on that particular uh, occasion you fail, you, you, you're not able to resist the temptation, 
and you fail. There are three things I want you to remember. Number one, you died to the guilt of that sin. You say, well, but just last night I, I binged and purged, and I, you know, I've done it every night for the last six months. And, you know, I just feel so guilty. I want you to understand there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. There is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And secondly, I want you to understand that your destiny is secure. That heaven is your home. And you're going in that direction. You're moving toward, toward home and the Father. That's a sure thing. If you have put your trust in Christ, if you've been truly regenerated, then you are secure to the end. But I would want you to struggle against the sin. I would want you to call it what it is. It's sin. And I would want you to struggle with it. And I would want you to know that one day, one day, you'll be delivered. Now, maybe not in this life, not in our natural life, because just as there is no uh, physical healing promised for, uh, for this life, we may be healed, we may not be healed. Just so some habits may be so deeply entrenched, so deeply ingrained, you will struggle with them to the end of your days. You may be delivered in this life, but on the other hand, if you're not delivered in this life, I can promise you, you're going to be delivered in the next. One of these days, you're going to see the Lord Jesus, and he's going to be so happy to see you. He loves you, and he longs to see you, and you're going to be changed. You're going to get a new body, a body just like his body, Paul says, without all the habits and all the garbage, all the junk, and all the trash that pulls us down. We're going to have a new body. We're going to have a body like his. And we're going to have a new mind without all the inclinations and the habits and the pullings and the yearnings and, and the, the stuff that we've put in our mind. It'll all be gone. We'll have, we'll have his mind. That's healing. That's real healing. That's redemption. That's the ultimate prospect of, of sanctification. So I would say to you, the mark of your regeneration is simply the fact that you keep yielding. You keep yielding. If you fail, you're forgiven. But don't take that forgiveness for cheap grace. It cost God a great deal. It cost him his very life. And, uh, uh, he, but, but he offers it freely to you. Now, I hope this has been, been helpful. It's a tough passage. And uh, people interpret it variously. But this is where I've come to it, uh, come to in my own study. And I hope this has been helpful to you this morning. Let's pray. Father, we're reminded of Paul's words in another place, that by faith we wait for righteousness. We realize that there will be times when we're overpowered by sin, when we fail and, and when we fall. But we wait for that time when the Holy Spirit conforms us to your image, either in this life or in the next. We realize, Lord, how short life is, how brief our time span is. And we recognize that this short, light affliction is working for us an eternal weight of glory. We long for that. We look for it. And in the meantime, Father, give us the grace to resist evil, 
Help us to remember that we've been delivered from its dominion. We've been taken out of the dominion of sin and placed into the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The old life is over. It's it's finished. It's done. The new life has begun. And we thank you, Lord, that that's our daily experience. Every day is a new beginning, a new life in which we can walk with you, enjoy your, your friendship, and worship you in spirit and in truth. We thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.